Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com slash notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Hunter Somerville is a general partner at Greenspring Associates, where he is responsible for sourcing and due diligence efforts on fund, direct, and secondary opportunities. He's also actively involved in the assessment of micro VC managers for the firm. He serves on the LP advisory boards for firms like Bolt, Bullpen Capital, Redpoint China, Fika Ventures, and many others. Hunter, thank you for doing this virtually. <laughs> My pleasure. Where, where are you recording from? I am uh, outside of Baltimore, in my house, in the extra bedroom. <laughs> That's right. My, my little girl is getting ready for a nap, so hopefully we don't have any background screaming. We're used to that in the Zoom calls now, so I'm sure some of our podcasts will now include kids in the background, which is... I know. The, the Zoom bombs are, are sort of humanizing. Um, I don't Yes, like exactly. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and what led you eventually to um, to working at Greenspring. Sure. Yeah. So I am from the Baltimore area originally. So I actually have the pleasure of still being able to work here and do venture. Um, certainly wouldn't be considered a hot spot for venture in, in Baltimore, Maryland, but really great that can continue to do it here and live 15 minutes from my parents and have them here for, for my kids to feel fortunate. I'm the same, but Brooklyn version. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, our office is still here. And my parents are uh, still a couple neighborhoods over for better or for worse, but. <laughs> yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. yeah. You want to be close, not too close. Yeah, exactly. It's been nice for me. Um, and then That's the only great. time I really spent away from living here is when I went to University of Pennsylvania undergrad. Uh, focused on international relations there, 
actually thought I would go into doing something on the, the legal side. And when I graduated, having not put a lot of thought into what I was going to do next, um, actually worked as a paralegal, uh, a law mm-hmm. firm in Baltimore for a year that uh, turned me against going in the direction of doing anything on the legal side and instead decided to get my MBA uh, instead um, and mm-hmm. went to University of Maryland, um, commuted from uh, Baltimore and drove there every day to College Park and got an internship while I was doing that at a firm called Camden Partners in Baltimore. And they were part growth equity firm, part diversified fund of funds. And I thought it would be really cool to figure out, you know, what alternatives were, understand private mm-hmm. equity a little bit better. And was really excited about doing that as an internship. Um, and so worked for the fund of funds part of that organization and got to know private equity, lower middle market buyout, mezzanine investing, distressed investing, royalty investing. And about 25% of what we did was focused on venture capital. And quickly learned that that part was pretty difficult and there were areas that that made it a lot harder than, than some of the others uh, around access and identification and assessment. Mm. Um, and while I was working there, got to, to know more of what Greenspring was doing. Um, I had heard of Ashton Newhall and knew him locally and actually John Averett, who I have known going back to uh, when we played Little League Baseball at the age of six, we oh, wow. continue to stay in touch with each other and go to lunch and share ideas. And he kept telling me, you should think about Greenspring and, and maybe making a change and focusing on venture. And, you know, I started to take that more seriously and saw what they were doing uh, around investing in funds as well as companies and secondaries and felt like if I could do each of those different areas and specialize even more, that, that could be pretty cool. Um, and certainly being involved in innovation and everything that's associated with venture was attractive too. So after staying at Camden for a number of years, I decided to, to make the switch and join Greenspring in the same capacity and the same title, which was associate back then. And what, what year was that? Uh, so I've been at Greenspring for a little over nine years. At this point. Okay, got it. So like 2010, 2011 timeframe? That's, that's correct, yep. What were the things at Camden, what were the things that made venture more difficult maybe to navigate than private equity and buyout? Is it just because like the firms are outside, maybe the top five or 10 are, are not as well known? And yeah, I'm just curious, like what, what, what about venture maybe piqued your interest and was more difficult for you to kind of figure out? Well, venture was so different then than it is now. This, this right. would have been like 15 years ago. Um, and, and back then you didn't have the high number of firms. You didn't have the micro category. Um, and it was more of getting access to the best performers exclusively and finding ways to be an additive and desired partner. How did you do that? Like, Or how did anybody do that? Um, so I was an associate at that point. But most of those were relationships. Okay. You know, I think we had uh, an interesting manager roster. We didn't have all of the upper echelon performers. And right. we dabbled around the edges in areas like life sciences and, and um, you know, groups that did some royalty structures and different kinds of boutique type investing. Um, so I, I think I learned quickly over time that, that 
getting that access and building those relationships would take time and effort and, and wasn't a trivial exercise. Um, and actually really was, was drawn to that um, because of, of, you know, what was required to make that work. Right. And from an assessment standpoint, I think, you know, you're looking at unrealized portfolios and you can't rely on DPI and you can't even really rely on current TVPI. You need to develop an understanding at the company level around the quality of companies and what those could be worth five to 10 years from where you're currently assessing it, because it's such a laggard way of looking at performance if you're judging it off of current mm. mark. Mm. In other words, you have to like look at really the recent funds of a manager to really understand their strategy and what they're doing, project out based on some maybe early stage companies in those funds yeah. in terms of how they might continue to do in the future rather than looking at like five or six funds ago, which could be different people and different time and different companies and all that. Is that right? Yep, you, you, you nailed it, exactly. Yeah. And, and we actually do that at GreenSpring where we do underlying projections on every company that's unrealized, you know, maybe not within the most recent fund where it, it's so new and so early, but we do develop a point of view around every underlying company. Mm. And I think if you don't specialize in venture, understanding the quality at the company level is pretty difficult. And I do think we benefit from the fact that we do direct investing as expansion stage investors and have a good understanding of, of most of the underlying companies once they hit a certain stage. Yeah, that was part of the reason I liked Greenspring because it wasn't right. just fund investing, it was also direct investing. Right. So one, one last question before I get to Greenspring, but how, how do you actually do that? Like you probably see hundreds of managers every year with portfolios of, you know, 20 to 30 companies per manager. Like how do you physically understand all of the underlying companies? Yeah. Like from a time jump. perspective. You're not going to go into that level of depth on every manager. I okay. think you know, there's a filter and a funnel around diligence deliverables and where you get to certain stages. The the original uh, assessment is going to be done hopping on on the phone with people, understanding if they have a differentiated approach, understanding that the team quality, how the backgrounds feed into a sustainable advantage in, in being a first call. And if it's not going to work from that standpoint, you're certainly not going to get into the granularity of looking right. at every unrealized company in the portfolio. But right. for, for opportunities that advance and look compelling on their face, then you get into that kind of detail. You start with the qualitative typically. In terms yeah. of your specific process, understand who they are, why they might be interesting, why they might have a competitive advantage, and then slowly, like as you get further along in the process, dig into the quantitative stuff. And there's other quantitative stuff you can do up front around attribution analysis right. and looking at deployment patterns by subsector and matching up who's deploying with who's got track record. Um, there, there's other things that are easier and faster that you can do to filter that universe before getting down to, to thinking about projecting. How do you think about attribution for really small firms? So like, for example, we've been asked about attribution at Notation over the years, and we just say we don't do it, you know, because as two partners, we work on everything together. We kind of have our fingers and everything. I might maybe source something, but it's, 
you know, maybe more technical in nature. So I hand it over to Alex or vice versa. And so we've just never got into the habit of saying like, this is your deal. This is my deal. And feel like in some ways it's, it's really kind of the antithesis of our cultural approach. So we just don't do it. But I, I feel like there's always a little dance there between being asked about it and saying we don't really do it and then saying like, well, but do it anyway. You know, so like how, how do you handle that for, for GPs that maybe or maybe every GP you work with does after attribution? No, no, I, I think your approach is fine and appropriate for uh, a, yeah. a firm that, you know, two or three partners. Uh, I, I don't have an issue with that. Um, okay. I do think when it becomes more complicated, more hierarchical, you're inserting associates and principals and junior partners and general partners and managing partners and understanding who's actually sourcing and who's taking board seats and how all of that ties together, then attribution does become something that's more important to understand. But in groups we do on the smaller side in terms of team and oftentimes in the seed category, I, I, I frankly don't care uh, among okay. the, the two. Um, and it's more about understanding the team dynamic and the organization and the health of the relationship between you know, a, a smaller number of individuals. How do you understand that? Yeah, I don't think there's any kind of you know, specific magic to that. It's really whether you're good at understanding people um, and mm -hmm. reading cues around behavior and getting a sense for the, the dynamics that are at play and talking to, to maybe other people that aren't the the necessary managing partners at the firm and you know they mm -hmm. always tend to be more forthcoming and more open and you just see it walking around you know which you can't do now um obviously when it's more zoom and right. virtual right. but i think it's behavioral assessment a lot of psychology and, and and understanding and watching social cues what are things that make you nervous there like what are what are maybe cues that you've seen in the past where you think there's something not totally right here amongst this team or group of managers or you don't have to name firms, but what are the things that maybe give you pause? Yeah, I mean, in small partnership, if the economics are way out of whack, um, that's probably going to lead to trouble over time. Mm. Um, and certainly it's better the more equal it can be. And so that, that's something that we'll look at. Uh, if someone is really doing a lot more from a, a hustle and grind standpoint in sourcing um, and someone else is just really sitting back and trying to take board seats or be involved post-investment, I like to see that grind and grit level from everyone at the senior level. And I don't want that outsourced or put off on someone else. And I think you need dynamics if you're going to hire people at the junior level where you're either helping them advance upon success and performance or you're finding them homes and other places where they can continue to be a brand ambassador for what you're doing. And so if you start seeing a lot of turnover, or people jumping ship or stagnation around the principal level, it uh, begins to beg questions around what kind of dynamics are holding this back from having you know, more of a, a long-term enduring quality. Hmm. And that's a simple like walking into an office and seeing seeing the dynamic and the cultural feel and how people are mm -hmm. spending money and how it's set up and laid out. There, there's so many subtle things. 
sorry this took so long to actually ask, but uh, could you tell us what exactly Greenspring is? Sorry, <laughs> I, went, I went down a little rabbit hole. But um, yeah, I think just just a quick overview of, of the firm and, and, and maybe just a bit on how it's kind of evolved since you joined almost 10 years ago. Yeah, it's evolved significantly from when I joined. Um, and I've also evolved because I started as an associate and am now a general partner on the team. Um, I think the benefit of that is that it speaks to those qualities I just mentioned, where it's a firm that does promote and creates a meritocracy upon achievement, um, which I like culturally. Um, when I joined, it was much smaller. The team was about 20 to 25 people. We're now uh, over 100. We've actually hired oh, wow. a few people during COVID um, and have onboarded them virtually. And so we're continuing to reinvest and grow the team and, and, and really care about the depth and breadth of, of what we're building. So an organization going from 20 to 25 people to now over 100. Yeah, I didn't realize that. You need to add in operations around that too, you know. We have a head of HR, we have a CTO, we have a head of compliance. We really take the operations, the back office side of what we do really seriously and have a lot of pride in that too. From an investment strategy standpoint, when we began, my partner Ashton had the foresight of doing both fund and direct investing together, uh, as well as including secondary. No one was doing co-investing in venture uh, in 2000, 2001. Mm. There were plenty of venture fund of fund. There were not a lot of people that felt like they should do both fund and, and direct co-invest. Ashton felt differently. He felt like combining the two would give us uh, a deeper relationship with the manager, would give us more information on seeing them in action at the board yeah. level, and how additive and how much the founders depended on the VC or didn't or didn't care about their opinion at all and would create a flywheel where we just became a, a better investor, a more informed investor. Mm. And also had the benefit of getting, um, you know, the, the directs, which are by their nature later stage, uh, combined with the funds, it, it's complementary in terms of return profile and time horizon. Yeah. So we began as just a commingled fund of funds in 2000. Now we continue to invest from a direct-oriented fund, a secondary-oriented fund, and we also have niche strategies focused on micro-VC and impact. Um, so we really think of ourselves now as a multi-strategy venture platform uh, instead of a venture fund of funds. I think some people still consider us only a venture fund of funds, but we really embrace the platform designation. And what we think is interesting is that We've seen people from all different avenues become platforms themselves. We've hmm. seen other venture fund of funds add components in secondary or in micro or whatever they think makes sense. And we've seen general partners add secondary funds or increasingly add select growth and opportunity funds or add micro VC or fund of funds components as part of their direct funds. So I do think there's a migration in the industry to platform and the role that platforms can serve within the asset class. Yeah, it does. It does feel like um, everybody's playing a little bit in everybody else's sandbox these days. And don't get me wrong. I don't think I don't think you need to be a platform to be successful in venture. Yeah. I have a ton of respect for focused boutique managers that just want to do what they're doing in a reasonable fund size, uh, in a focused manner. 
But I do think platforms can be very interesting uh, in their own regard. Where do you spend most of your time at, at Greenspring? Yeah, so we've never siloed our team from the very okay. beginning. Um, everyone okay. has been involved in everything. The way we describe is that we have majors and minors. Um, and so we're going to focus on some areas more than others, but we never wanted to create separate teams. If you think about it, if we're partnering in investing in a company in which we have a manager involved, we don't want to push them off on someone else they don't know. Right. Rather, they right. continue to have that relationship with whoever's serving on their advisory board and who they know and who they trust. Um, so we, we don't want to silo. But in terms of major and minors, areas that I've resonated with and liked and do more in, I think the venture secondary space is really interesting. Um, I don't think that uh, people have spent as much time there. It's still considered boutique, but I, I just think you're going to see a lot of interesting activity in GP-led restructurings. What does that mean? In venture secondary. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you define that universe? Yeah. So we do three different types of secondaries. We buy LP interests from people that need to sell for whatever reason. They want to rebalance portfolios or they want to, to get out of certain groups. We do direct secondaries where we buy shares from employees or departed employees or angels within a company itself. And then increasingly what you're seeing more of in venture are funds that want to do tender offers and offer a certain discount to an entire LP base in an older fund. And we could come in and buy those uh, from a number of different people at once, create a new entity and potentially give them more primary capital to back their winners mm. in that. And so mm. I think as hold periods extend in venture and as companies stay private longer, you're going to see GPs think more creatively around how to deal with that and provide liquidity back to their investors. Um, and we like to think we've been early in thinking through some of the interesting ways to do that. So that would be that last example, just because I haven't thought that much about that, is like a manager with a fund that's maybe five, six, seven years in, or maybe longer. Maybe longer. Yeah, I think, I think six to 10. Six to 10. Yeah. And you would essentially like buy out their LP base at some. Uh, it's not that dramatic. We would offer a discount. They could offer that to their underlying LPs. Yeah. Those LPs could sell all of their interest, sell half of their interest, and have that capital to reinvest back in the manager in a future offering. Hmm. And then you would provide that manager potentially with a little bit of additional capital to support the por portfolio. Yeah, what you see in venture portfolios in years eight to 10 are, it ends up becoming very concentrated in NAV around a few names. Um, yeah. Oftentimes reserves start to get a little stretched and with companies staying private longer, there's still good return to be had off of those companies. And you're not gonna see people aggressively crossing stuff over or putting it you know, into different funds at that kind of return profile. So. If we can find a win-win with a smaller pool of primary capital to accompany um, you yeah. know, what they're already doing, that can allow for continued support around the, the best performance. So you're spending some time there these days. But I, I, I historically think of you as spending a lot of time in kind of emerging managers and seed and micro. Yeah. And, and that's, that another, right? that's another major for me, yeah. just an area that I like and am super passionate around. Um, so 
we're very, very fortunate to have LPs that have supported us in, in doing a micro-specific program. Um, and it's been great being able to back new managers at, you know, fun ones or twos or, or threes and, and helping serve as an anchor and, and being really collaborative and hands-on. I, I find that really rewarding. Uh, could you talk about some of the managers that you've backed there and, and why? Like yeah, what got so, you excited about them in the really early days? Of yeah, maybe so a just fun to, one. to be inclusive, we list all of our managers on our website, and so they're they're yeah. all up there. Uh, we tend to be transparent, and we're not trying to hide the ball, and we're everything's yeah. listed. Um, and so, uh, just to pick a few in micro, um, we backed uh, groups like Fika Ventures in their first fund um, yeah. out of out of LA, um, and think extremely highly of of TX and Eva and, and what they continue to build. And uh, just really proud of uh, of what they've done so far um, with the portfolio and the team and the brand. Um, and I've been fortunate to work with them from Fund One, which was smaller, uh, into Fund Two now um, as they've continued to scale. Um, so that's an example uh, of someone that we really feel feel proud of. How have your own views on venture changed in the last nine years or so? since you since you started at Greensboro. And I guess going back even further to Camden, like, I mean, obviously the asset class has exploded um, in terms of dollars and managers and everything else. Like how, I'm curious, maybe personally, some of the things that you maybe look for and care about today, whether it's type of company that you work with directly or type of manager, like what are maybe some of the things that you've maybe changed your thinking on over the years or care more about today, maybe compared to when you were first starting? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what we look for in the managers, um, I, I think the two characteristics that we like to say describe us culturally are grit and a healthy paranoia. Hmm. And so I think managers that embrace both of those as well resonate with us. Um, we want people that you know, have had to earn it um, and continue to feel like they have to earn it every day uh, and don't take that for granted and feel like at the same time they could be disrupted by someone else doing it better and that there, there's no free lunch and everything's going to have to be earned. And, you know, just like their underlying companies are disruptors and then can be disrupted, they need to think of their organization the same way and push the boundaries and find ways to stand out and be unique to the founder community and additive. Um, so that's really underlying a, a lot of what we like. Um, ultimately, we're going to be working with these groups for a long period of time. So we want to respect and like them as, as human beings um, with high integrity and, and people that are just collaborative that we can do stuff with on a direct basis and, and folks that are just great to work with and are, are loved among their their LPs, their syndicate partners. And, and we want people that uh, have a deep understanding of portfolio construction and reserve management. Uh, I think all of that is taken for granted too much, uh, particularly among the micro community. We're more of a believer in concentrated portfolios um, just because we like to see position sizes increase in NAV over time through follow-on activity thoughtfully deployed. And we do become worried if it becomes too spray and pray and or if you're just not getting aggressive in your winners. We also are very wary of, of folks that don't reserve effectively or that do too many investments. And I think it, it was easy to be trivial around reserves 
in a, a in an easier environment. But now you find yourselves in scenarios where you're going to have to face dilution if you can't participate. You're going to see the return of pay-to-play scenarios, and you're going to see down rounds. Um, and to the extent that you just assumed it was always going to continue to go up and to the right, that's where a lack of, of foresight on reserves come back and, and becomes much more problematic. So we spend a lot of time talking about portfolio construction reserve management. We also want GPs that really think about the institutionalization of their LP base and are thoughtful around creating diversity there by type, uh, by even geography, and that really think about who they want to work with and aren't just raising money to to get it done, um, but doing it with the right people. Because once again, you find yourself in, in a tougher environment and you're going out to raise capital and suddenly the people that were there for you aren't anymore and you have big holes in your LP base and the whole organization can be put at risk, particularly in the smaller. Yeah. Or you have a certain type of LP that gets more negatively affected by a macro environment. And if you overweighted there, you're, you're almost starting from scratch and you don't want to introduce that level of risk, which should be controllable to a fund. So we actually help a lot of our managers think through who the right partners could be in addition to us. Yep. Some of our LPs or other people we think highly of in the market that we can connect them to and, and really be thoughtful around building a, a high quality, enduring LP base over time. How do you think about your own portfolio construction? Depends on which fund we're talking about. Um, yeah. Because it's different for everything we do. But Say for, for micro. For micro, um, we tend to have a roster per fund of uh, somewhere around 12 to 15. And we think that we need to be selective within a category where there's 900 or so to choose from. Sure. And our bias is, is to pick those most compelling 15 and to continue to be there for them when they come back in, in future raises, as long as the social contract that was agreed to at the beginning and what they said they would do is, is proven out. Um, and you're going to need to give folks some rope in this category because they're investing in seed and it's going to take a while, certainly to see realizations and even sometimes to see follow-on activity. Yep. It puts an onus even more on you as an allocator to understand the quality of the portfolio when it's not as obvious uh, in this category because you're dealing with unrealized portfolios for you know five to seven years. And you could find yourself in four iterations potentially before you know it, if it's good if you don't know the underlying company. Right. I mean, you kind of touched on it, but when would you consider moving on from a relationship with the manager? I assume that's happened at some point over the last 10 years. Sure. I assume there's some where just firms move on, either retire or break up or whatever. Yeah, where where have you kind of had had those tough decisions? I'm curious, what were the underlying drivers? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a, a good sign of a, a smart allocator is, is knowing when to get off the bus too. Um, and so I think within micro, you generally want to be supportive for for at least two cycles and, and get a good grasp around the portfolio and then make a, a decision after that, um, unless something dramatic has happened, like, you know, one of the partners has left or is gone. Right. Right. There's been like a massive hole in terms of write-offs in the portfolio right off the bat. But for the most part, if things are going according to plan, you should give people two cycles to, to continue to prove it. 
think the more interesting scenarios are some of the brands and, and firms that have been around for a long period of time that are on funds, you know, five to 15 and looking at who's deploying the capital, whether generational transition has been effective, um, how that's been, you know, explained versus what's happening in reality, how that reflects itself in the economics and, and who's actually benefiting from that upon success and digging into all of that and being smart about understanding if maybe a brand that was once elite um, it no longer, or maybe the perception is still there that it is, but in reality, you think there's serious structural things that will make that more unlikely. And, and that's the nuance to it. Do every one of those firms share their underlying GP and management company economics? If they're not willing, do you, do you automatically pass? No, I think for the most part, people are, are, are pretty transparent around yeah. what they're doing. Uh, everyone displays it and describes it differently, but people will give you a sense for, for how that works. Um, yeah. I think if people are really secretive about it, it it's oftentimes a warning sign. Yeah. Yeah. So to put this into context, because folks may listen to this many years from now, we're uh, beginning of May here, um, 2020, a couple months into an unprecedented global pandemic and health crisis. And that, that's obviously had major implications for business and, and companies and startups and funds. One, just curious how you kind of where we think we are in the in the crisis and the and the recession. And then two, what what both you and Greenspring are doing and, and how you're seeing some of your managers react. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist and I'm not a CIO, so I'm very specialized within venture and feel like I've got a good sense of what's going on there. Most people are now epidemiologists. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to make any <laughs> predictions around yeah. around any of that. Um, but yeah. I, I think what continues to, to make me feel good and happy is I, I always have been drawn to venture as well, just because I think it's a force for good. You know, you see more negative press these days around tech and, and how it can be a force for bad. But I think more and more you're seeing a mission-driven element enter into venture investing and that companies are really embracing how they can you know, conduct themselves and have a business model, but also add a, a mission-driven element or a, a sustainability focus or embracing of diversity. And Venture at its heart it's, has been and always will be a job creator um, and an important force for the economy, despite representing a tiny, tiny piece of the overall pie in terms of dollars deployed. So yeah. I love the fact that I'm able to tie my career to a category that can have such positive impact and, and embrace of mission. And I think with newer generations, we're going to see more and more of that. And so... I do think impact and how it merges and meshes with venture over time is going to be super interesting. Um, and I've just seen so, so much of that uh, in, in a difficult time period like right now. Um, certainly, it's really sad to see what's going on in the broader economy and you know, job losses that were announced today and, and people that are struggling paycheck to paycheck. And you know, what's going to help push us through is, is great companies getting started that are going to be adding massive amounts of jobs from a startup standpoint as they scale and grow. And there's no time like this in terms of the, the emergence of disruption and founders being able to be creative around new business models um, and you know things that seem very static and 
obvious before, now there are opportunities to do something with the use of technology to make it better or, or to generate impact. And so that gets me really jazzed and excited and happy about being part of the venture community. In terms of what we've done tactically, the first few weeks after this happened, uh, we literally did a whole risk assessment going through every underlying fund company that we've ever invested in. Wow. And depending on the companies or the funds, we looked at it differently. I think on a company level, what everyone, including our GPs and us, needed to be on top of was reserves. And not just what you previously had as reserves, but how you would think about reserves when you're extending runway and recognizing that uh, the year-over-year growth may not be at the, the 100% level that you're used to. Right. Cash becomes king, runway becomes very important, and insiders need to step up and support their companies to the extent that there's continued belief in the go-forward mission. And so we really looked at every one of our funds and, and tweaked reserves accordingly um, and, and checked in with all our managers around how they were thinking about it and how they were set up. Because frankly, it's harder in older funds to be able to tweak reserves uh, if right. you haven't accordingly. How would you do that practically? Like, are there ways to, assuming you've already built the portfolio, right? And, you know, you can't, you don't have the flexibility to maybe decrease the number of companies in the portfolio and reserve more for a fewer number of companies like are, are you seeing managers raise additional capital to reserve or downturns you always see the emergence of the annex funds phenomenon um i have not seen that yet um but I, i'm sure it will come uh, i think it will become more confusing because when people ran were raising annex funds before you didn't already have them deploying select an opportunity and growth fund. Right. It's a different environment now than it was then. But most opportunity funds aren't coming in and investing in down rounds or doing crossovers from much older funds. And so right. you know, there may be scenarios where annex funds are required. I still think that the better approach is to always be overly conservative on reserves in the first place and continue to hold those as part of the portfolio. And reallocate them accordingly as things change and continue to to focus them on the companies that are the most compelling and can generate the highest level of end of day returns so just because you do per company reserves doesn't mean you have to keep them there you move them around dynamically over time but people will be looking at all different kinds of mechanisms to to support their portfolio in, in ways we've, we've discussed do you reserve differently for managers like for your fund of funds portfolios, do, is there a concept of like reserving or, or, or is it not, not really? Yeah. Not really. Um, you, you would have to, to think about an annex fund separately. Um, but right. Generally, you know what you're getting there and you're, you're hoping that the manager will put a hundred percent of your capital to work and work through the fee component uh, because, you know, everything's judged on a net performance basis. But no, it's more of a, a factor on, on the direct side. Um, and then among our managers, we're looking at what they're doing offensively as well. We're seeing a ton of insider rounds, companies raising at last round pricing, being thoughtful about adding runway that way and just reopening it up, even if it were like a year ago. Um, I don't think people are trying to top tick or even uptick. Last round seems fine. Or you're doing convertible note structures, you know, that convert at a future round at a discount. Both are being employed, but 
you know, venture investors should be putting capital behind the companies they really believe in and, and being offensive as well as defensive from an investment standpoint. The companies appreciate the added runway and the support of their syndicates. I think people realize now more than ever how important strong syndicates are because yeah. you come into scenarios where you've got weaker firms, they're just not going to be as helpful in this kind of environment. Yeah. How have you seen the pace of managers raising funds and and has that changed has that fallen off a cliff has it sped up because everyone's worried about raising their next fund like i'm curious what you've maybe seen from existing managers in your portfolio if their timelines have changed and from potentially new managers that you're or whether they're emerging or established looking to looking to invest in on the established side, uh, people have been raising on the timelines they had described or slightly earlier, um, and they've been doing it in record speed. So I haven't seen a lot of you know, delays or, or extensions. People have good supportive LPs that want to be in these funds or want to invest more behind them, and they're, they're happening very quickly, um, as we would expect. Um, so mm-hmm. nothing has really changed there, um, except okay. maybe groups wanting to raise slightly earlier to have the capital and no change no change in size of those funds or size of allocations really generally they're staying uh, around the same slot size to slightly mm. larger not not significantly larger but but slightly larger uh, i do think for for the micro category in the emerging side um, it's going to be harder to raise capital unless you've done what we were talking about before and institutionalizing your LP base and having thoughtful folks that will make good targeted referrals to other people that you know could be good long-term investors. And, and someone who would be starting a fund one, this is going to be a very difficult environment to do that. If you're in that camp, it's easier if you're spinning out from a group where you've established a track record and that's known. Yeah. Uh, I think very difficult to start a new firm without that kind of background right now. People are just focusing on their re-ups heavier than they do historically. Have you seen a noticeable drop in new first-time funds coming to you or folks spinning out of firms? Or I, I realize we're only like two months into this thing. We're, <laughs> we're still at the very beginning, but I'm just curious, even in the last two months, have you seen any noticeable change in terms of new firm creation? It feels lighter to me. Um, yeah. I don't have any specific data around that, but I've not seen as many new fun ones um, that have gone out. I think people who are thinking about it will just wait and, and do it next year. What I've seen more of are, are some groups that are, feel stranded or that have had to extend timelines that are in the micro category, but probably haven't nailed that enduring long-term LP base. Um, that have just been out there longer and that are checking in and giving an update, and building relationships, which is what we ultimately want. But I, I do think it'll be harder for, for that category to necessarily get things done uh, in this environment because I, people just feel more comfortable with, with some of the bigger groups, for, for better or worse. Yeah. Any impact on your direct business? Like, are you guys doing more there, less there? Are you being more aggressive? I guess you're reserving more like you'd advise your managers, but. I think for everyone, you know, people are going to be investing, but you also want to get a sense for the impact to, to the top line off of original forecast. 
And it's hard to, to say that with any level of certainty because yeah. this really started impacting businesses in mid-March and we just find ourselves at the beginning of May. And so all you have really to, to look at is April numbers. And I think getting a sense for April, May, maybe even part of June and forming a view on how off of plan businesses are um, in Q2 really allows for more comfort on the go forward plan for the year. Mm. So I think our managers and, and us included aren't trying to be reckless. We want to be active. We're you know, interested in doing opportunities and supporting great companies. Um, but we want to really understand how real forecasts are. Mm. Um, and I think we'll be able to get our arms around that pretty quickly. But, but just seeing April um, is tougher. Um, yeah. But I do think there are interesting opportunities to invest in companies at last round pricing where you can come in almost to supplement and complement what the insiders want to do already yep. and, and be a, a force for good and additional capital in opportunities that you know with people you trust. So that's more of what we're seeing. I guess it's worth mentioning when we do direct investing, we're generally leading and pricing rounds ourselves. Um, so we're doing C and D rounds typically and would look to, to serve as a lead. We're probably at this point and in this environment waiting for those things that I just mentioned to be more active. But in, in situations where you can come in with insiders and do extensions, what we, we have looked at and we'll do some of those. Hmm. I know, again, we're early innings on this thing, but I'm curious how you think about even a couple months and the potential lasting effects of COVID-19. And I mean, certainly in the interim, it's had significant effects on different types of businesses. But I'm curious if you, given your history and venture, how you see this maybe playing out a little longer term. If you were to look, if you were to look into your crystal ball. I think in micro, it will probably lead to some groups not being able to continue to race. And you'll have the, the zombie phenomenon of portfolios existing, people managing it, and at least feeling like they can fight for another day once the portfolio rebounds and shows more strength. Right. Um, I think you'll have an increase in that, that profile and that type, and some will just not continue to exist. Um, so I, I could see the numbers there shrinking uh, as a result of this in the near term, um, not significantly, because there's always going to be new people that want to spin out and start something new. But I do think you'll have some that fall into the zombie category. Um, I think that the folks that have embraced a platform orientation will become stronger and larger and um, more differentiated and diversified across what they do. I think that's just natural and what we've seen in, in prior downturns. Be interesting to see what happens with crossover investors and you know mm. whether they come back and how fast they come back. Sometimes... And those are specifically like the Tigers and the Fidelities and folks, folks like that. Yeah, groups tied to mutual funds or hedge funds. Right, public and private yeah. investing, yeah. yeah. Are they largely out of the market now, just collectively? I, I think they're, they're in the market. They're watching and, and yeah. figuring out yeah. thoughts. Um, but historically, that has led them to be less active. And yeah. down. Corporates, to me, feel like they'll become less active corporate VC activity was pretty high. And we've seen some that are, you know, interested in, in doing less or even thinking about selling portfolios from a secondary standpoint. Mm. 
just to give themselves additional balance sheet flexibility. So it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see what happens there. At a company level, I think you'll just continue to see folks establish hopefully 24 months of runway at least and find ways to do that through doing extensions or taking on debt or, or finding ways to give themselves flexibility to both get through this and then also to start reigniting growth before they have to raise again. So everyone is thinking about runway and having an adequate amount of cash. Secondary wise, I think this will become a very interesting secondary environment. Yeah. I think there will be a lag to that because right now, if you would be looking at secondaries, it would be off Q4 numbers. Even when you get Q1, it's not going to reflect a ton of distress because you only had two weeks in March that were really impacted. Where you'll see a drop is in public positions or if groups are more reliant on option pricing models, you could certainly see a down, downturn because of that. Um, I think valuation is being discussed all over the place around how to think about valuing underlying companies. But by Q2 and Q3, you'll, you'll see a drop to some degree in NAV off of quarter. And there, buyers and sellers will, will be able to meet in the middle um, with a discount level that's appropriate. And venture secondaries always trade at a deeper discount than you see in, in private equity, at least over the last 10 years. So right. it could be interesting there um, as well. And like we talked about before, I think you're going to see mission and impact matter more. Um, within venture and, and groups really branding themselves around that both at the fund level and also at the company level because um, ultimately that's going to become more and more important. Hunter, thank you for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. This was a lot of fun. I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time. Should have done this years ago, but yeah, a <laughs> little easier to record actually via Zoom than getting everybody in person. So one benefit. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And chat soon. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. 
If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.